it's Wednesday, the 21st of February, and welcome to Career 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang The number of trainee doctors who've handed in their resignations in protest of the government's plan to increase the medical school admissions quota has grown to almost 9,000. We'll have the latest on this standoff with the government in news briefing shortly. South Korea recently saw the warmest February day on record, followed by snow. We discussed the apparent phenomena of increasingly extreme weather events for our in-depth today. And coming up for Korea Book Club, our literary critic reviews a collection of thought-provoking poems by Kim Sae called Poverty Must Persist. Let's begin Career 24. The government and the medical community continue to lock horns over the planned expansion of medical school admissions quota. By Wednesday, nearly 9,000 trainee doctors had submitted their, les- their letters of resignation in protest of the plan. Meanwhile, the government has remained resolute and vowed stern actions in response. For more on this story and other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jango. So, Daniel, doctors and the government, both sides are putting their foot down, it seems. What's the latest? Like you mentioned earlier, close to 9,020 doctors submitted resignations in protest of the government plan. The health ministry said inspections of 100 major teaching hospitals found as of 10 p.m. Tuesday, 8,816 trainee doctors, or 71.2% of the total have tendered resignations. None were accepted. Of this group, 7,813, or slightly over 63%, have left their jobs, prompting the ministry to issue notices regarding the return-to-work order. At the nation's medical schools, 8,753 students, or 43.8% of some 20,000 nationwide, have applied for a leave of absence as of 6 p.m. Tuesday. On Tuesday, the Government Intern Resident Association said the government's heavy-handedness led to their, the Korean Intern Resident Association, rather, said the government's heavy-handedness led to their decision to resign en masse, claiming the government is treating them like criminals. The group urged the government to call off the planned code hike, set up a body to conduct a scientific estimation of an, of an appropriate number of doctors, and to withdraw the return-to-work order. And how has the walk-off by training doctors impacted medical services so far? So as of 6 p.m. Tuesday, the government received 58 reports of damages caused by the collective action, mostly cancellations of surgical procedures and doctor's appointments. Up to 50% of planned surgeries were postponed at the five major general hospitals in Seoul. The government held a meeting with the heads of 97 public medical institutions and decided to operate all public institutions under a round-the-clock emergency system and expand patient consultation hours. Meanwhile, the Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Interior and Safety, the Supreme Prosecutor's Office and the National Police Agency announced in a joint briefing, uh, joint briefing on Wednesday that it will take strict measures against what it called illegal collective action by the training doctors who have walked off their jobs. That's right. The government said it will, in principle, arrest and investigate the, inve- the instigators and medical professionals who do not return to work and severely punish any actions that interfere with the treatment of patients. The ministries and law enforcement agencies warn resident physicians who do not comply with the return to work order will face investigative detention and formal indictment in principle. On the flip side, the Korean Medical Association's Emergency Response Committee strongly criticised the government's response to the collective action by training doctors, calling it, quote, repression at the level of a loss of reason, end quote. 
Those were the words used on Wednesday. The Emergency Response Committee held the meeting and a news briefing. Chu Suho, the head of the committee's PR uh, committee, said the government is suppressing the trainee doctor's basic rights and stressed the freedom of doctors to choose their profession is as important as ensuring medical services to save lives and should be respected as a fundamental right of the people. He also slammed the health ministry's move to halt any donation given to the trainee doctors for legal expenses that may incur during their collective action, as well as the military manpower administration's warning to trainee doctors to not leave the country. So it looks like the standoff will continue for some time with neither side budging. We'll discuss this issue further on our show tomorrow for our in-depth. Uh, but in the meantime, let's turn to some other headlines. Uh, a KBS Commission survey shows that the ruling People Power Party and the main opposition Democratic Party are neck and neck in terms of public support. This is coming with less than 50 days left until the 22nd general elections. So a closer look reveals that, according to a Hanguk research survey of 3,000 eligible voters conducted last Thursday and Friday, it shows the approval rating for the both main rival parties stood at uh, 37%. 1% of respondents support the Minor Justice Party, 6% the newly formed New Reform Party, 15% don't support any particular party. The PPP and the DP are in a tight race in Seoul, the fiercest battleground for the April 10 elections, as well as in Daejeon, Sejong, the Chungcheong provinces, Gangwon provinces, and Jeju. On which party candidate they would vote for if the election took place tomorrow? That was the question thrown, and the respondents said 34% picked candidates from the DP, 33% from the, DP, from the PPP. 49% said there is a need to support the opposition to keep the government in check. That's nine percentage points higher than respondents who said the ruling camp should be supported to help the government. On President Yoon's handling of state affairs, 33% gave positive assessment, 61 said the opposite. The survey commissioned by KBS had a confidence level of 95%, with a margin of error of plus or minus 1.8 percentage points. Moving on, President Yoon Sang-yeol stressed the need to boost the economy by easing regulations on areas of land on which development is restricted, known as Green Belt Zones. Can you tell us more? During an open forum on people's livelihoods held at the Ulsan Exhibition and Convention Center on Wednesday, he said efforts to build high-tech industrial complexes in regional areas often hit a snag due to Green Belt regulations. The president vowed to fully overhaul for the first time in two decades the criteria for lifting Green Belt designations. He emphasized the need to revamp regulations on farmland use as smart farms and vertical farming are areas where high added value can be created with farming technology instead of just produce. He vowed to ensure the government conduct inspection to revamp outdated ones. Uh, there are 336 such rules under 12 government agencies and local governments, so there may be needed changes. Meanwhile, business sentiment worse, worsened in February due to sluggish domestic consumption amid uh, project financing woes. Can you tell us more? So according to the Bank of Korea on Wednesday, the business survey index for all industries stood at 68 in February. That's down one from the previous month, the lowest figure since September 2020. The index stayed at 70 from October to December before falling for two consecutive months this year. A rating below 100 means pessimists outnumber optimists. The BSI for manufacturers dropped one point on month to 70 in February, the first fall in six months. The index for non-manufacturing industries, which include restaurants, wholesalers and retail businesses, remain unchanged from the previous month at 67. Local firms' business outlook for March marked 72. That's up three points on month. 
In other news, a North Korean ballistic missile Russia fired in Ukraine last month reportedly contained hundreds of components that have been traced back to companies in the US and in Europe. So can you tell us more about this finding? So citing an investigation by the UK-based Conflict Armament Research Organization, CNN reported on Tuesday that of the 290 North Korean missile parts collected in Ukraine, 75% were designed and sold by firms incorporated in the United States. 16% were linked to companies incorporated in Europe, while 9% were connected to those incorporated in Asia. Most of the components comprised the missile's navigation system, tracing back to 26 firms headquartered in the U.S., China, Germany, Japan, the Netherlands, Singapore, Switzerland, and Taiwan. The CAR report, the CAR report suggests the parts were likely diverted within the global supply chain once sold to international distributors. So North Korea has been developing a robust acquisition network capable of circumventing sanctions that have been in place for nearly two decades. Next, we head to Australia, where a Korean family of three have been found dead in Sydney. What do we know? This is according to local police. A Korean man identified by the surname Jo was found dead in his home by police at 10.15 a.m. Tuesday. Rather, About three hours later, his wife and son were also found dead at a nearby Taekwondo school. The New South Wales police announced they arrested a 49-year-old man surnamed Yu in connection with the incident. Yu operates a Taekwondo martial arts academy where two of the bodies were found. He visited a hospital with severe wounds to his arms and body on Monday just before midnight. Yu reportedly claimed he had been wounded at the academy, leading medical staff to report the incident to police and resulting in the discovery of the Cho family. Police are reportedly investigating Yu's possible connection to the deaths and analyzing CCTV footage in the area of the incident. We have a sports-related headline next. Yi Gangin and Son Heung-min, two of the national football team's top players, have reconciled after they were reportedly involved in a physical altercation during a recent tournament. Uh, this was, of course, headline news in recent days. Can you tell us uh, what's happened? So on Wednesday, via social media, he offered an apology to the national team players, soccer fans, and his senior and captain, Sun, and said he visited Sun in person to offer a sincere apology. He understands now the weight of the responsibility Sun has to bear as captain. So that means um, being the bad cop sometimes, forcing junior players to do something that they don't feel like they want to do, like stop playing ping pong after the meals. He stated he had the chance to reflect on his behavior in a long conversation with Sun. The altercation occurred after E and some other younger players left the team dinner early to play table tennis, and this was on the eve of Korea's Asian Cup semifinals match, and they haven't been performing optimally, so Son wanted to spend some time together talking about things. Son took issue with this, and that led to altercations during which Son injured his finger. Son accepted E's apology and posted a photo he took with E and asked the public to forgive the young star, as he has been going through a very difficult time since that incident. And finally, the Korea Meteorological Administration will focus on boosting the effectiveness of its hazardous weather alerts as part of its major policy plans for this year. On Wednesday, the KMA announced the Extreme Heavy Rain Emergency Disaster Text Message System, which had a pilot program run in the metropolitan area last year, will officially launch this year. Gwangju and South Jeolla Province will be launching it as a pilot program. From 2013 to 2022, the North Jeolla region had more rainy days than other regions, with an average 4.1 days per year more than other regions. Meeting the criteria for emergency disaster text messages for extreme downpours. The KMA directly sends such text messages when rainfall reaches 
50 millimeters per hour and 90 millimeters in the in a three-hour period. Starting June, when providing information on hazardous weather such as heavy rain, heat waves, and cold waves, details like extreme value ranking information and occurrence frequency will also be included. That's where we're going to wrap it up for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 stock and forex update. The benchmark Korea Composite stock price index dropped 4.48 points, or 0.17 percent, on Wednesday to close at 2,653.31. The tech-heavy Kosdaq slid 2.10 points, or 0.24 percent, to close at 864.07. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 2.91 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,334.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Global News Roundup, where we look beyond Korea to discuss headlines from around the world. Joining us for that in the studio, it is our KBS World Radio news editor, Koo Hee Jin. Hee Jin, hello. Hello, Jang. A UN food agency has paused delivering aid to northern Gaza, citing Israeli gunfire, as well as quote complete chaos and violence due to the collapse of civil order in the area. End quote. This has increased concerns of starvation among refugees in northern Gaza. So, what can you tell us? Well, the World Food Programme said the decision has not been taken lightly, as it risks people dying of hunger. But it said that the safety and security to deliver critical food aid and for people receiving it. Must be ensured. The latest suspension on Tuesday has heightened alarm about the lack of aid uh, follow, uh, flowing into the area, which has been almost completely cut off from aid since last October amid the Israel-Hamas war. The agency said it had first suspended uh, deliveries to the north three weeks ago after a strike hit an aid truck. And CNN reported on Wednesday that strike earlier this month may have been initiated by Israel. Forces. The agency tried resuming deliveries this week, but said convoys on Sunday and Monday faced gunfire and crowds of hungry people stripping goods and beating a driver. This news comes as the U.S. voted uh, vetoed an Algeria-backed resolution at the U.N. Security Council demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, claiming that it would "quote unquote" jeopardize talks to end the war and handed its own draft. So this has been met with international backlash. Hijin. Indeed, uh, the move on Tuesday was the third U.S. veto of a UNSC resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza, and came a day after Washington circulated a resolution that would support a temporary ceasefire linked to the release of all Israeli captives from the Palestinian enclave. And the uh, vote in the 15-member uh, council was 13 to 1, with U the UK abstaining. 
reflecting the strong support from countries around the globe for ending the devastating conflict that has killed more than 29,000 Palestinians. Now, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Washington's ambassador to the UN, said it was not the right time to call for an immediate ceasefire while negotiations between Hamas and and Israel were continuing. China and Russia were the most vocal in their censure of the US as Beijing slammed Washington for sending the wrong message, adding that its objection to a ceasefire in Gaza is nothing different from giving the green light to the continued slaughter. Yes, well, the wrangling continues, it seems, as the situation in Gaza becomes more concerning. We'll continue to follow the developments on Global News Roundup. In the meantime, we turn next to Russia, where... President Vladimir Putin declared Tuesday that Moscow has no intention of deploying nuclear weapons in space, claiming that the country has only developed space capabilities similar to those of the US. So what was this remark in response to? Well, according to the Associated Press, Putin made the remarks during a meeting with his defence ministers, uh, uh, Sergei Shoigu, on Tuesday. Putin noted that uh, Russia has only developed space capabilities that other nations, including the US, have. His remarks follow the uh, White House confirmation last week that uh, Russia has obtained a troubling anti-satellite weapon uh, capability, although such a weapon is not operational yet. Uh, White House National Security spokesperson uh, John Kirby said it would violate the International Outer Space Treaty, but declined to comment on whether the weapon is nuclear capable. The treaty, signed by more than 130 nations, including Russia, prohibits the uh, deployment of nuclear weapons or any other kinds of weapons of mass destruction in orbit or the stationing of weapons in outer space in any other manner. It seems tensions between Moscow and Washington are heightening even further, especially as the White House vowed on Tuesday that it will slap additional major sanctions on Russia. That's in response to its war with Ukraine and the death of the opposition leader Alexei Navalny last week in an Arctic penal colony. Indeed. Well, um, Putin on Tuesday did not rule out the possible uh, future contacts with the US either, but um, reaffirmed his view that Washington's push for Russia's defeat in the Ukraine makes them impossible for now. And all eyes are on Washington's sanctions against Russia. That will be announced on February 23rd, the eve of the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. National Security Advisor uh, Jake Sullivan said the sanctions, quote, will be a substantial package covering a range of different elements of the Russian defence industrial base and uh, that powers uh, Russia's war machine, that powers Russia's aggression and that power Russia's repression. Yes, we'll keep an eye out on the sanctions. And we should also flag up some important dates coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Putin's State of the Nation address is coming on February, 20, uh, February 29th, followed by the Russian presidential election two weeks after that. So, yes, it looks like a, a busy month ahead for Moscow. Mm-hmm. Finally, six Chinese Coast Guard officers boarded a Taiwanese tourist boat and conducted a, quote-unquote, forced inspection just miles from China's southeastern coast, which prompted alarm and protest from Taipei, Heijin. 
Well, according to CNN and Reuters, two Chinese Coast Guard vessels intercepted the King Sha, the uh, Taiwanese tourist boat uh, with 23 passengers on board during a trip around Taiwan's outlying Kinmen Islands, just miles from China's southeastern coast. The unprecedented inspection by six Chinese officers checking the vessel's route plan, a certificate and the licenses of its 11 crew members lasted for half an hour. As the guards said, the tour boat had veered towards the Chinese side of the water to avoid shoals. Uh, for years, sight- uh, sightseeing boat tours between Kinmen and Xiamen, the closest city on the Chinese mainland, have offered Taiwanese tourists a chance to gaze at uh, China's skyline without the hassle of border checks. That is, up until the recent uh, King Sha incident. China also operates similar tour boats for its citizens too. Now, analysts say the latest measures are part of China's grey zone tactics, referring to coercive or aggressive state actions that stop short of open warfare, something Beijing has used increasingly in recent years in the East and South China Seas as well as towards Taiwan. That's all for our Global News Roundup today. Hezen, thank you for bringing us those stories. Thank you. This place is amazing. I feel like a new person already. I knew this was a good idea. And look, Juliet, it's a sign. I say we go to this ball, y'all. It is my night out. And this is where it all begins. So, baby, let me in and show me love. This is Broadway at Tohang Jumin. Now you're listening to KBS World Radio. Last year was officially the warmest year on record for the world, according to the European Union's Climate Agency and NASA. And South Korea was no exception. According to the Korea Meteorological Administration, the nation's average temperature in 2023 was 13.7 degrees Celsius, the highest on record. Along with rising temperatures, there have been an increasing number of abnormal weather events, such as the torrential downpours and flash floods in July last year, That led to the death of at least 47 people, including 14 in an underpass near Tongju. Such abnormal weather trends have continued into 2024 as well. February saw record daytime highs one day, then snow the next. The Amshan Ice Festival in Andong was cancelled as the ice on the frozen streams were not thick enough. Local governments are also looking to bring forward spring festivals this year as well. To give us a picture of how climate change has been affecting South Korea and what we can expect moving forward, we have joining us on the line today Martina Igini, uh, Managing Editor of Earth.org. Hello and thank you for your time today. Hello, thank you for having me. 
So South Korea has been seeing unpredictable weather patterns in recent years. Just last week, as I mentioned on Wednesday, the nation recorded the warmest February day on record. Then that was followed by snow in many regions the next day. So how long have we been seeing such extreme weather conditions? Is this something new and what's been causing it? Um, it is exactly as you said. What we're seeing in South Korea are indeed very abnormal and unpredictable climate patterns. Uh, the country is seeing more frequent and more intense extreme weather events, the magnitude and duration of which is often hard to predict. Um, and these events are not isolated. They're part of an unfolding trend. Um, as you mentioned, 2023 was South Korea's warmest year on record with 11 out of 12 months recording above average temperatures. Um, and the current winter season is also seeing unusually high temperatures. We're not even two-thirds of the way in, and February has already been confirmed to be the hottest February the country has ever seen. And, of course, warm winters have repercussions on the rest of the year, as less snow results in drier conditions when spring kicks in, meaning higher risk of severe droughts and forest fires. Um, temperatures aside, 2023 was also South Korea's second wettest year after uh, 2003, um, and while we're used to periods of intense rainfall, especially during the monsoon season in the early summer months, the magnitude of these events uh, and the amount of precipitation we've seen are unprecedented. When it rains now, it pours. And because drainage systems and infrastructure, especially in large cities like Seoul, um, were not originally designed to handle such conditions, we're seeing a rise in deadly floods. Um, the rain from last summer, as you said, the heaviest in more than 100 years, um, which led to the Chengdu tunnel disaster and dozens of casualties is just one example of this trend. Now, while there may be many different contributing factors to uh, extreme weather conditions, uh, which some experts say are not necessarily linked to climate change, do you think that climate change and global warming can lead to these extreme weather conditions? Um, yes, so what we're seeing is not normal and it is unfolding at an alarming rate and there is no doubt that global warming is behind this. Um, the planet is warming rapidly, temperatures are much higher than pre-industrial levels. Um, just a few days ago it has been confirmed that we've just had 12 consecutive months of average global temperatures above the key limit of 1.5 degrees Celsius, which was set in the Paris Agreement in 2015. Um, and in South Korea as well, average, temp average annual temperatures have been rising at a rate of uh, 0.6 degrees between 2000 and 2020. Uh, and these rising temperatures, not just surface temperatures, but also sea temperatures, contributes to more rainfall and more destructive typhoons because of the addition of moisture into the atmosphere. Um, and that's also why monsoon seasons are getting longer. Um, in 2020, South Korea recorded its longest monsoon season in seven years, with 42 consecutive days of rainfall. And in the same year, three consecutive tropical cyclones hit the country in the space of just two weeks. Um, but on top of glo global warming, last year also marked the return of a weather pattern known as El Niño. Um, and scientists had warned many times last year that the return of El Niño, the first one in four years, uh, would bring off-the-charts temperatures in many parts of the world. And they weren't wrong, as we've seen. Um, but how this phenomenon affects weather conditions very much depends on what side of the world you're on. And in the Korean Peninsula and other North Asian regions, El Niño translates to milder winters and more rain than usual. And that's exactly what we saw last year and what we're seeing now. 
Right, and of course, this situation is not just isolated to South Korea. Uh, I'm assuming that we're seeing similar uh, extreme weather conditions in other countries around the world as well. Uh, yes, absolutely. We're not talking about an isolated trend, as I said, but it's a global trend that we're looking at here. Um, 2023, as you said, was the planet's hottest year in more than 150 years, and almost no place on Earth was spared by the sweltering temperatures. Um, Asia, in particular, is home to some of the world's most vulnerable countries to climate change, such as Pakistan, India, Bangladesh. Um, you might remember the dev- devastating floods that paralyzed Pakistan in 2022. They displaced more than 30 million people. Um, India, a nation very used to hot temperatures, has seen very early heat waves in recent years that kick in as early as April and that bring temperatures three to eight degrees above average for weeks or even months consecutively. Um, but even regions and countries that one would think be, to be relatively safe in terms of climate change have been hit hard. Um, China's northern region, for example, saw temperatures 4 to 50 degrees Celsius last year, while the south was being hit by, hit by torrential, torrential rain. Um, and again, the country is used to seeing uh, rain and flooding, such as South Korea, uh, but definitely not on, of this magnitude and not so frequently. Um, I'm based in Hong Kong, and we've experienced something similar to South Korea last year. We woke up one day in September to a city completely paralyzed and entire districts flooded after just a few hours of torrential rain, which was the heaviest the city has seen in 140 years. And that came just a week after a signal typhoon, uh, a signal 10 typhoon, the highest on the scale, hit the city. Um, and, I mean, the list goes on and on. Mm. Climate change is here, and it is real, and it is affecting all of Asia and all of the world. Indeed, and thank you for briefing us uh, on what's going on in other countries as well. There was an article on your website, earth.org, last year that looked into South Korea's recent extreme weather events, but also concerns about South Korea's role in contributing to the conditions that lead to uh, climate change. So on that note, how has South Korea's record been in terms of combating climate change? That's right. Um, We all know that fossil fuels are by far the main culprit of climate change. Uh, And when we look at South Korea's emission, it becomes quite clear that the country is a direct contributor to the problem. Um, The government has committed to decreasing emissions by 40% below 2018 levels by the end of the current decade, so 2030. And it has set a target of reaching carbon neutrality by 2050, like dozens of other countries around the world. And it assigned the Global Metal Pledge and the Global Coal to Clean Power Transition, committing to transition away from these planet-warming fuels. However, it remains among the world's top 10 countries for greenhouse gas emissions. And in 2021, it contributed 1.67% of global carbon dioxide emissions. And there are unfortunately no signs of this trend slowing down. Um, in fact, uh, the country's latest energy plan shows that coal will still account for about 40% of electricity generation by 2030, uh, followed by gas, which actually um, the South Korea's green taxonomy sees as a green fuel. Um, and while fossil fuels keep dominating the energy mix of the country, renewable energy development is really lagging. Um, in 2022, wind and solar accounted for just 5.4% of electricity production. For refer- reference, the global average is about 12%. Uh, 
Um, and President Yun repeatedly dismissed transition to 100% renewable, saying it doesn't make sense and it costs too much. Um, and for this reason, South Korea is seen as one of the most challenging markets to buy renewable electricity, with companies that plan to switch to renewables citing a lack of procurement options, high costs, limited supply, and grid uh, inflexibility. And then there's nuclear energy, which currently provides around 29% of electricity in South Korea. Uh, and last year, the government announced uh, plans to produce actually more of it and have up to 34.6% of electricity coming from nuclear. Um, and this increase would imply developing six new nuclear reactors alongside the existing 12 ones. Um, the problem is that while it's true that nuclear doesn't emit greenhouse gases, uh, so it can be considered a green source of energy, it is still extremely expensive to develop. It comes with complex issues such as the radioactive nuclear waste storage, um, and the nuclear accident could have disastrous repercussions, uh, like we've seen in Ukraine and like we've seen in Japan. So nuclear energy shouldn't be treated as the ultimate solution to climate change, and the government should really focus on developing renewable energy instead. Right, and according to Climate Action Tracker, an independent organisation that tracks uh, government climate action, South Korea's overall rating for its action against climate change uh, was classified as highly insufficient uh, as well. Okay. How then do you think South Korea should try to tackle this issue and solve or at least remediate the problem? What is uh, What should South Korea's priority be when uh, looking to combat climate change? Um, you know, there, there's so many things that we could do. Um, President Yoon said after last year's flooding that uh, he was determined to improve the country's preparedness and response measures. And this is definitely one of the most important steps societies can take, not just South Korea, um, climate mitigation and climate adaptation. So we cannot stop extreme weather events from happening. Um, the climate crisis has begun, uh, and whether we like it or not, we have to learn how to deal with it. Of course, we can and must work to stop it from deteriorating further, and this can only happen if we stop bankrolling the fossil fuel expansion and instead fund the transition to clean energy sources. But as I said, in the meantime, we must also focus on how to mitigate the impact of climate change and how we adapt to these new conditions. Um, in the case of South Korea, where extreme temperatures and floods are among the most pressing issues, we must work on improving flood defense infrastructure or even completely rethink our urban landscapes. Look at China, for example, which is testing sponge, sponge cities to mitigate the risk of urban flooding. Um, we must also invest in urban heat solutions to, to, to fight these increasing heat waves. Um, and we can do that, for example, um, to, um, we can do that by increasing green areas or cool pavements and we must think about how we protect vulnerable groups as well in cities. For example, we should set up cooling centers and have rules in place for outdoor workers. Um, and of course, citizens can do their part too, uh, but this can only happen if the government sets up subsidies and policies that regulate this translation as a way to encourage and help institutions and individuals to play a part in it. Um, so, for example, the government should encourage companies and people to waste less food and, and less water, to reduce plastic consumption or generate less waste uh, in general, 
um, as all these things add to greenhouse gas emissions and are just also part of the problem, albeit less than fossil fuels. Um, use environmentally friendly transportation, switch to electric vehicles, um, power your house and your business with renewable energy. Um, and of course, raise awareness among the population. So, for example, make climate change, educa- uh, climate education uh, compulsory in schools, like Italy has done and New Zealand. Right. So, there is much action that uh, we all could do to help tackle uh, climate change. Uh, as you mentioned, of course, we should be focusing on decreasing greenhouse gases. But at the same time, climate change is already happening. On that note, then. Should we expect more extreme weather conditions uh, this year and for it to worsen in the near future? And to what extent, what sort of extreme weather conditions should we be bracing for? Um, Yes, for sure. We will see more extreme weather conditions in the future. Um, Citing President Yoon again, he he said after the flooding last year that these extreme weather events are the new normal. And he was very much right. Um, experts say 2024 is already on track to be another record-breaking year on so many levels. And El Nino, the weather pattern I mentioned earlier, is still here and it is expected to bring more instability across the world this year, whether it's flooding or extreme temperatures uh, or extreme droughts. Um, And we've already seen this happen in the first few months of the year, right? So many countries have had their hottest January and February on record this year already, um, there is an unprecedented, uh, unprecedented snow shortage in Europe. The U.S. West Coast has seen torrential rain in recent weeks, and the list goes on. So, as I said, this is an unfolding crisis. There's no going back, and the best thing we can do is to prepare for more extreme events this year and in the years to come. Indeed. We'll leave it there. Thank you for briefing us on this important issue for us today. We've been speaking to Martina Igini from Earth.org. Thank you once again for your time. Thank you so much. Did you know that Korea24 is active on social media? You can do more than just listen to Korea24. You can find out what the team has been up to on Korea24's social media accounts. We are on Instagram on KBS underscore Korea24, where we post about our weekly segments from Monday's sports segment to Friday's movie spotlight. Sometimes we share snippets of the team's day behind the scenes so you can get to know us better. On YouTube, we upload film versions of our segments, and you can also check out what other language services have been up to. Find us on at KBS World Radio Service. Make the most of your Korea 24 experience by following us on social media. Literary Corner Korea Book Club. This is where we explore the world of Korean literature and books each week through works in translation and beyond. With me now is our wonderful literary critic Barry Welsh with another book for us to discover. 
Barry, hello. It's great to see you again. Yes, it's great to see you too. Okay, so what are you introducing to our listeners today? So this week we are reviewing a poetry collection that was translated and published last year, uh, and it's called Poverty Must Persist, and the poet is Kim Sa-i. Uh, the Korean title is Kananun Yuji de Oyahanda, and this collection is actually the 32nd volume of the K-Poet series, uh, which is published by Asia Publishers, and we've dipped into that series in the past. Uh, the trans- Translator is Sunny Che, who's a translator and lecturer at uh, Iwa Women's University. And previously, we've reviewed her excellent translations of Maya in Tokyo and Love in Sapa. Uh, and the poet uh, Kim Sae, she uh, hails from Henam, uh, which is in the Cholan Namdo area. Uh, and her journey as a poet began when she joined the Guru Workers Literary Society. And this has uh, been a big influence uh, on her uh, work and previous collections and this collection too. Uh, her first poems appeared in the Poetry Review uh, Quarterly Journal in 2002. And that marked her uh, entrance into the Korean uh, literature uh, scene. Uh, this collection is her third collection and it follows uh, The Day I Quit Reflecting and I Say I'm not doing anything. Uh, and Kim is known for and uh, celebrated for uh, vividly depicting uh, workplace issues, so sort of absurd uh, issues in the workplace and especially the struggles of female workers. Uh, and this is something she focused on in those earlier collections. Uh, she continues to explore uh, uh, life's and society's uh, irrational uh, elements in this latest collection of poems. Uh, and unfortunately, instead of seeing an improvement, uh, the social landscape appears to be deteriorating in, in Kim's analysis uh, and depiction in, in, in these uh, poems for, for the most part. Uh, and she doesn't shy away from uh, acknowledging the uh, distress, uh, but rather empathises with the, the suffering she sees in the world. And it seems like she's using her poetry as a, a, a vehicle or a medium uh, to express uh, solidarity and resistance with uh, people suffering and struggling. Yes, the title, Poverty Must Persist, it's certainly an interesting one, an arresting one, I would say. Uh, understand that this uh, thought-provoking collection has stirred uh, the waters of modern Korean poetry. Let's uh, explore a bit more why. Can you give us an overview of uh, Poverty Must Persist and its significance in uh, contemporary Korean poetry. Okay, absolutely. So uh, the poems in Poverty Must Persist uh, for the most part contain piercing and uh, rather pointed explorations of modern uh, socio-economic disparities. Uh, they're generally uh, written and, and crafted with Kim's uh, sharp wit and uh, lyrical uh, prowess. And I think the collection mainly stands out for its raw portrayal of life's hardships. Uh, but this is at times juxtaposed with moments of uh, quite stark uh, beauty. Uh, and Kim has, I think, a, a quite a unique voice that resonates uh, you know, within modern Korean literature. Uh, and her poems offer a, a fresh perspective on what are enduring and common themes in Korean poetry and literature in general. And these are themes of struggle and resilience. She mm. sort of brings a, a fresh outlook, I think, it, to, to these issues, these uh, uh, themes. Mm. Uh, and the translator of the collection explained to me that, uh, I'll quote a little here, the title of the collection is a criticism of systemic poverty uh, used to maintain social order, i.e. Uh, with built-in inequalities. 
And that's certainly something that we can see uh, in this co- in this collection. So, for example, in a poem such as Under a Solid Roof, uh, this describes a society in which, uh, quote, uh, refined rational desire and flexible resolve serve to persecute the poor for being poor. And this sort of it's a theme that uh, recurs throughout the collection. Uh, and at the end of the collection, there's a great essay by uh, Pak Hyun, uh, Hyun Jin, uh, and he's a poet. And uh, Park is a poet and professor at Dongguk University. And he says uh, of this poem that only Kim uh, would detect the smell of defeat and silence long suffered by the poor when she likens the stench of defeat to a musty basement room and the odor of silence to a staggered cough. The figure of speech uh, extends beyond the rhetorical flourish kindling the heartening pain experienced only when life overlaps with poetry. Wow, interesting. So she's tackling some very complex and weighty ideas in this collection then, it seems to be hinting at. Sounds fascinating. Uh, What sorts of themes does she explore and how does the, perhaps, the writing style and translation contribute to uh, the impact of the poems as well? Uh, right, so uh, what Kim is navigating here are the uh, themes of poverty, uh, social injustice, and the human spirit's endurance through these things. The poems focus on the daily uh, realities of those living on the margins, uh, reflecting uh, how societal structures perpetuate uh, ongoing inequality. Uh, but um, among this, or amidst these uh, very uh, sombre reflections, Kim also uh, find space to celebrate the strength and dignity uh, of the individuals facing these challenges. So she weaves quite a complex tapestry of despair uh, and hope in these uh, in these poems. Her style is at times so both stark uh, at times and then evocative at other times. Uh, she employs vivid uh, imagery and and uh, concise language to sort of or to to try and strike directly at the heart of the matter. Uh, and sometimes there's a rhythmic quality to the writing that. Uh, perhaps we could say mirrors the ebb and flow of, of life's trials and triumphs. And her at times minimalist approach, I think, can magnify the emotional weight of each word. And, and this allows us to uh, feel the intensity of the themes that she's exploring. So, for example, in Reprisal, uh, the narrator of the poem quits uh, n- narrator of the poem quits her work and uh, sort of strides out of the office into the rain, uh, discarding her work items uh, as though to celebrate the cheap send-off. Uh, and on her work, she observes little birds and they're you know, struggling or dying because their feet are caught in uh, disposal masks, which uh, she describes as deadly avian snares. And seeing this image awakens the narrator's compassion and she uh, sees herself in the birds as someone who's also been discarded and disposed of. Yes, very powerful imagery indeed as well. So um, what do you think readers can take away from the experience with Poverty Must Persist? What impression does it leave them with and what impression does it leave about Korean poetry as well? Right, yeah, so I think really what Kim is trying to do here, or what she would want readers to take from this, is uh, you know, that that um, uh, readers will sort of come through this collection with a renewed sense of empathy 
and a deeper understanding of the com- complexities surrounding po- poverty and social inequality. So she invites us to reflect on our own positions within uh, society, within sort of social structures, and what's the the role of art in advocate, advocating for change. So I think this collection not only mirrors the, the social issues and woes and problems, but it's also in its own small way a beacon of, of hope, uh, urging us towards compassion and, and action. Uh, and I think it's a significant addition to Korean poetry, uh, and it's one that challenges us to look beyond the surface and uh, connect with the, the human story behind uh, the sort of social problems you read about in the newspaper or see on uh, the television. Mm. And hopefully uh, it will inspire readers to uh, keep finding poetry in the everyday. Well, it sounds very much like a worthwhile collection to seek out. Once again, it's called Poverty Must Persist by Kim Sae, translated by Sunny Che. That's where we'll leave it, Barry. Thank you for another recommendation. We look forward to the next one. Until next time, take care. Okay, take care. And that's where we wrap up the show. Before we go, though, we'd like to remind our listeners of the various ways you can listen to our show. You can go to our website, world.kbs.co.kr, as well as our apps, KBS Kong, KBS World Radio and KBS World Radio On Air. KBS World Radio is also available on shortwave in various regions. For full details of frequencies, check out our website. You'll also find there all our previous episodes in a podcast format, which you can also find on various popular podcast platforms. Just search for KBS Career 24. And we also have a looped YouTube live stream of KBS World Radio's English language service. So you can catch all our daily English language shows all day, any day. Just search for KBS World English on YouTube. And that brings us to the end of our show. Tomorrow we'll be back with more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Tune in to Wonder Hours with Hedim and join the K-pop star for two wondrous hours every weekday. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jung-woo helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea, keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with Global Audiobook, Once Upon a Time in Korea. And if you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday and Friday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in! KBS World Radio